thinking of a statement that was made in a book that I was reading on other religions, and they said one of the unique things about Christianity is congregational singing. And I was thinking it's because we have a lot to sing about, right? We have a lot to sing about. Let's turn to Acts 5. I want to read verses 12 through 16. Hear the word of God. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we desire that we might grow in our understanding, not only of your kingdom purposes, but uh, of the place that uh, we play in those. I pray that you would anoint my lips, enable me to preach the word faithfully, and that that word would be mixed in our hearts with faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Paul Decker is a pastor in Williamsville, New York, and he told a story about an Amish father and his son that uh, went to town to see the new mall that had been built. Uh, everything was just brand spanking new, and they walked in, and they saw kind of a curious sight. They saw uh, silver walls that would, every once in a while, come apart and then close. And the son asked uh, the father, Father, what is that? The father said, I don't know. I've never seen anything like that in my life. And right while they were speaking, uh, an older lady in a wheelchair wheeled between them, pushed a button, the doors opened, she went into the elevator, the doors closed, and uh, they'd never seen an elevator, and they watched lights going up with numbers and lights coming down in numbers, and then the door opened, and a uh, gorgeous 24-year-old lady stepped out, <laughs> and he said, quick, go get your mother. <laughs> now, unfortunately, that is the way many people view miracles. They do not see miracles as something for God's glory and for the advancement of his kingdom. Instead, their preoccupation with miracles is for their own comfort, for their convenience, maybe even just for their curiosity, sort of like Kelvin and Hobbes with their transmogrifier, you know, where uh, they can transform themselves into anything just on a whim. Now, that is not to say that we should not expect uh, miracles uh, I believe that uh, we can uh, continue to, but it is to say that we need to make sure that our concept of miracles is clearly grounded in the Scripture, that we know what to expect and what not to expect. And <clears throat> I gave a, ser a sermon earlier on in the book of Acts that uh, indicated that we can expect that God will do miracles all the way through the period uh, of the kingdom, but there is something rather unique that is going on in this particular passage. Very unique. Not even the most exaggerated claims for miracles today claim that absolutely everybody that they touch is being healed and that even the people that their shadow falls upon uh, become uh, healed. Uh, at least I've never heard anybody uh, make those kind of claims. 
And so to fully appreciate the privilege that we have of asking God on occasion for miracles, and I think we do have that privilege, we need to understand what the, promises, uh, what the Scripture uh, has promised, what it has not promised. And uh, obviously this passage is not the last word on the subject of miracles. There are many other passages as well, but I think it gives us a lot that we can meditate upon. Let's look first of all, in your outlines there, at the purpose of these particular miracles. Verse 12 says, And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. Now there are, it calls a miracle signs and wonders. The word wonders in the Greek is teros. It means something that induces terror, something that induces fear or puts awe, reverence, wonder within a person. And I think that's a very important purpose. We'll look at that in a moment because uh, there are so-called miracles that are being performed today that produce the exact opposite in people. They do not produce fear and reverence and awe for God's majesty. But I think this first word sign is also important. It is defined by the dictionary this way. It denotes optical impressions that convey insights. And then it lists many examples. Uh, first example that that dictionary gave was the um, uh, uh, road signs that you would find pointing toward a destination or saying that you've arrived at a destination. Uh, in the Greek mind, those were signs. They were optical impressions that conveyed a, a, a meaning. Uh, other signs that they listed were the flag symbols that were given in battles by the Greeks and the Romans. So the general would be standing up on a hill and he'd have some people with him and, and they would throw their flag in different ways to indicate to the people down on the battlefield what their next tactic needs to be and where they need to be moving. And they would speak of those as signs. Baptism and circumcision is called a sign because it is an indication or it's attesting to the fact that this individual has laid claim to the promises of God and it's pointing to the promises of God. But most of the times that the word sign is used, it's a reference to miracles. It's not the only function of a miracle, but it is one of them. Uh, Josephus uh, uh, defines that word signs. And he said God, in this way, he says, God uses miracles to convince people of something. So the first purpose of miracles is that it points to something. It convinces people of something. Over 50 times the Bible describes miracles as being signs. And so in this context, what is it that the people need to be convinced of? Well, you could say they maybe needed to be convinced of the truth of the gospel. It could have had that as a side, uh, a, a side purpose. But I think that in the immediate context here, the primary purpose that was being intended here was that they, the signs, these miracles, were indicating that the apostles were indeed who they claimed to be, that uh, they were of God, that they were truly the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only the apostles who are doing the miracles here. And uh, elsewhere in the book, you do not find anyone else other than apostles having this kind of remarkable grouping of miracles that are put together. And so in this sense, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12 says, Truly, the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Now, 
if they were signs of an apostle, then you would expect that they would be unique. You would expect that they would be different than the way miracles were engaged in by other people. There must be something unique that only shows their, their apostleship, that, that points to them uh, in, a, in a different way. And since apostleship has passed away, as we've already uh, demonstrated in the book of Acts, uh, we would expect that there would uh, no longer be any people who would be able to have exactly this kind of thing happening where absolutely everybody that they touch is healed, that anybody upon whom their shadow falls is healed. And to me, that's an encouragement. And the reason it's an encouragement is we ought not to be discouraged if everybody that we pray for is not healed. You know, sometimes people say, there must be something wrong with me. I keep praying for healings and the Lord's not healing everybody that I pray for. Well, you look in the last 2,000 years of history, you're not going to find anybody that falls into the category of the apostles there. This is the norm. God sovereignly distributes miracles when and where he wills, but there's nothing strange about you if, um, if uh, you cannot uh, heal everybody. You will not find anyone who could walk through hospital wards and... Uh, uh, everybody that he walked by jumped out of bed, you know, and he emptied out all of the hospitals. It's simply you do not find that kind of thing. These were designed to attest to their apostleship, much like the miracles attested to Moses. Moses uh, was given such an outlandishly unique work, and the giving of the first five books of the Bible, the foundation of the church's faith, was so unique that God gave him unique groupings of miracles that nobody else had, like the parting of the Red Sea and giving manna for 40 years and opening up the earth and swallowing up people, you know, who were opposed to his ministry. In many different ways, he attested to the fact that Moses had the authority to do the things that God had called him to do. And since the apostles were forming a new Israel and like Moses were giving new revelation that would be recorded in the scripture, they had to have something unique as well that would be recorded uh, that would attest to the fact God was saying, yes, these are people who uh, they claim to be in the scriptures that they write are scriptures that you need to uh, submit to. So just as we would not expect that... Um, you know, it was going to be parting of the Red Sea uh, any time that we wanted or things like that. We're not going to expect to have exactly the same kinds of miracles that the apostles did. Now, on the other hand, just because they are signs of an apostle, we should not go to the other extreme and, and come to the conclusion that all miracles have been done away with once the apostles have died. Now, there are some people who believe that, but notice in your outline that God used miracles as signs not just of an apostle, but of other uh, people as well. Some of them unique, some of them not so unique. Let me give you some of the unique ones. If you turn back to Acts 2, verse 22, you will see that God gave signs that demonstrated that Jesus was truly who he said he was. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. <clears throat> he claimed to be the Son of God, which, if you didn't know him, was a pretty remarkable claim. So God, by the Spirit, empowered Jesus to do all kinds of miracles to attest to the fact 
that God was authenticating him, that he was agreeing. Jesus is who he says he is. And I'm not going to have you turn there, but God had the same purpose uh, in giving miracles with regard to Moses. In chapter 4, when he calls Moses, Moses asks this, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. And so God gives them a miracle. He says, cast down your rod, it becomes a snake. Then he says, pick it up by the tail, and it becomes a rod. And he says, when you do that, here's the reason I give you this sign, that they may believe, verse 5. And then God says, if they don't believe that sign, here's another sign you give them. Put your hand in your coat and bring it out, it's going to be all leprous white. Put it back in, bring it out, and it's going to be completely cleansed. If they don't believe that, here's a third miracle that they will believe. And that's sort of the way it went. Initially, they were a little skeptical. And eventually, they did believe Moses that God had indeed sent him. In Leviticus 9, verse 24, God gave a sign to authenticate the tabernacle. Uh, this was a new system that was being inaugurated. And God caused fire to fall down out of heaven to light the wood on the altar and the sacrifice that was there to let the people know, hey, even though this is all new stuff, I am authenticating the fact that this sacrificial system is of me. He did exactly the same thing with the temple under Solomon, Second Chronicles 7, 1 through 3. God caused fire to fall down. Now, why would he do it then? Well, it's because people were used to worshiping in the tabernacle. And they might worry, man, I don't want God to be offended with me. Has God really authorized leaving the tabernacle to go to the temple? And so God caused fire to fall down from heaven and to do exactly the same thing. It was an attestation that this temple was what it claimed to be. Uh, Luke 21 indicates God would send signs and wonders to Israel, showing that they were about to be destroyed and that the temple was about to be destroyed. And we already dealt with that, that verse, Acts 1, 19 through 21. There were all kinds of signs and wonders in the heaven above and the earth beneath leading up to 70 A.D. to warn the people and let them know, look, I'm warning you ahead of time, you are going to be toast and you need to listen and, uh, and pay heed. Now, could God bring similar miracles and signs, you know, in connection with his judgment of a nation today? I guess he could. The question is, has he promised to do so? There may be some indications he's done through, down, down through history. But let's just assume those are all unique. We still need to realize <coughs> that these unique events were not the only things that called for signs. Another thing that miracles signaled was the presence of the kingdom. In the Old Testament, it said, when the kingdom comes, there are going to be miracles, including one that was particularly important, and that was the casting out of demons. And I think this is why Jesus said, if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, we're living in the time of the kingdom, and I think we can expect that the casting out of demons is a power that the church will have until all demons are cleansed from the land. Now, the point is that just because miracles could be signs of an apostle does not mean that that was their only function. Mark 16, 17 says that signs would also follow ordinary believers and would do so during the whole time that the, preach, the gospel is being preached to the ends of the earth to every creature. Uh, these signs will follow those who believe, and he gives a, a listing. Now, does that guarantee you're going to have a, a miracle uh, all the time, any time that you want? Uh, no, even the apostles weren't able to do that. Remember, Paul 
later on in his life, once he was attested as an apostle, there were, things, there were people he was not able to heal. He left some people sick. Um, and so it's not a guarantee. The only time God brings miracles is when they serve his kingdom purposes and uh, his glory. But they can demonstrate we're in the time of the kingdom. They can demonstrate that, uh, you know, God is with us, that we're believers, that we are part of his kingdom. And then lastly, Romans 15, 19 indicates that God gave signs through Paul to show that the gospel message itself was true. Uh, my father uh, told me uh, about a group of missionaries uh, during the uh, 1800s who had been uh, captured by some cannibals, and it didn't really look good for them at all, but one of the men just blurted out as they were being hauled away, my God can move mountains. And the chief stopped and said, and I don't know if I'm getting the story exactly right, you cannot, I was trying to find the transcript of it, but um, uh, he stopped and said, if your God can move this mountain, then uh, we'll spare your lives. And he thought, what a nutty thing to say. Why did I say that? But they stopped and the little group started praying. And from what I remember, it wasn't with a whole lot of faith. And right while they were praying, there was an earthquake and a landslide and a whole section of the mountain went down into the sea. Well, all of a sudden, the whole tribe there was opened up to the preaching of the gospel. And it seems that God has many times done this in pioneer mission work when it's just newly entering in, that God many times will give miracles to serve as signs of the truth of the gospel. Now, with just that little survey, I think you can see that there are some signs that you would expect to be temporary, like with Moses and with the apostles. There are other uh, sign purposes that you would expect would last throughout the time of the kingdom. The second word used in verse 5 to describe uh, one of those purposes of, uh, uh, of miracles was wonders, Greek word teros. <clears throat> a wonder was something that put fear or reverence, wonder or awe into the people. Verse 5 says that the miraculous death of Ananias put fear into the people. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. Well, I guess so. If you point out a person's sin and say the Lord's going to judge him and they fall down dead, it'd make you a little bit nervous too, wouldn't it? Um, and that's repeated in verse 11. Now, I think that there is something that we can draw from that, from that passage, and it's this. God's purpose in giving miracles is not to make people think that he's a cosmic vending machine. It does not have that purpose. His purpose is to make people stand in awe of him and to tremble at his word. Be suspicious of anything out there that makes the church self-centered, self-serving, rather than having awe at God and trembling at his word. And this is one of the reasons why uh, I am very nervous about the health and wealth uh, gospel. It's not because God is opposed to health or to wealth. He loves in blessing his people, but God's purpose has never been to bless selfishness, has it? Uh, instead, his purpose is to draw our hearts out day by day to be stewards, to glorify his great and awesome name. And I think that the miracles of the New Testament had that function. It engendered fear in people. It engendered reverence for them. And if you look at uh, 1 Corinthians 11 sometime, and you look at the, the weakness, the sickness, and the death that happened to many in Corinth in connection with partaking of the Lord's table unworthily, 
I think it dem- and he not only sowed that, he, he gave all kinds of illustrations of God's judgments in the Old Testament. He says, now you're receiving exactly the same thing here. It was to demonstrate that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That he continues to be a God of judgment. His judgments are designed to stir up awe in his people. Verse 13 indicates it even produced awe in some of the unbelievers who witnessed the miracles. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. There was a certain nervousness about associating with a God that you can't control. You know, a God who, yeah, he gives nice miracles over here once in a while, but he also smites you dead over here. I mean, this, this is not exactly... Uh, the kind of God that Americans like. Americans like a nice God who does nice miracles at your command. That's just not the way God works. God's miracles were designed to put fear and reverence for His name uh, into these people. And the shallowness of Christianity today that purports to have miracles at their command, and I think many of them are scams, they're not miracles at all, but who purports to have that and yet has no fear of God I think ought to be a clue that something is not right. Something is not right in the state of Denmark. And so the first purpose is to serve as some kind of sign. The second purpose was to produce fear. Third purpose for these miracles was to purify the church. Now verses 12 through 13 show a separation between the believers and the hypocrites. And I'm going to begin (coughs) reading at the second half of verse 12. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. Now commentators have debated on what exactly that phrase, none of the rest of them, means. Uh, Several commentaries point out it can't mean none of the rest of the Jews because the next verse goes on to say that lots of those Jews were joining them, were becoming Christians and fellowshipping together with them. And other commentators point out, you know, it really can't mean the rest of the believers, that it's the apostles who are here and the rest of the believers didn't join them, because before and afterwards, and even verse 12 implies, all of the believers were joining together. So what does it mean? Uh, I think the best explanation that I have read is that this is a reference to the rest of those who, like Ananias and Sapphira, immediate context, were driven by a desire to please men. In other words, they were secret believers at this point. Um, This was the problem with Joseph of Arimathea. He believed in Jesus, and the scripture indicates it it, it seems to be a, a genuine faith. But he did so secretly, it says, because he feared the Jews. John 19, verse 38. Later on, he becomes more bold. He comes out of the closet. John 12, 42 says the same was true of many others. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. So they were concerned with appearances before men. Well, the question comes, well, first of all, the the idea here is that the miracles purified the church, chased away false believers, also chased away hypocritical believers, And the question is, why would miracles have that function? Well, I think the hypocrites were nervous on a number of counts. First, they began to realize that God, when he did miracles, it was only to serve his holy and sovereign purposes. Secondly, God's miracles were sometimes tough. It's just not the way a lot of people like to think. Thirdly, 
uh, God's miracles drew far too much attention from the authorities. Now, if your goal as a hypocrite is to have good appearances, you don't want to be drawing attention from those authorities, do you? You want to be in good graces with everybody. Uh, have your feet in both camps. And next week we're going to be seeing how enraged the high priest and the Sadducees were with these miracles and with the preaching that was going on. And if you're fearful with what other people might think about you, believing in a God of miracles is not the way to go. Much simpler to put God in a box. You know what? God will not be put into a box. And we can put God into a box in one of two extremes. On one extreme, we can say, well, uh, God cannot do any more miracles, even though there's no, you know, they, they think it's ne good and necessary consequence, but there's no statement in the Bible that he would not continue to do miracles. So that's one way. God can't do that. And besides, it makes us nervous. And then the other extreme is to say, God does miracles every day and on, it's on command. And I think both of those are, are unbiblical extremes. Back to the main point here. This point shows that God's purpose for the miracles was not to produce a carnal, self-centered church, but to produce a holy, uh, separated uh, church. And so be suspicious of churches that promise to be able to schedule revivals and miracles, but have no interest whatsoever in holiness and God-centeredness. The last purpose for these miracles were as an accompaniment to evangelism. And perhaps it was to get the attention of the people. Verse 14 says, And believers were increasingly added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. The word so that in the Greek indicates a very strong connection between the uh, evangelism and the miracles. Very strong connection between the two. Now let me give you a caution before I talk about that connection. And the caution is this. We should not think that miracles can produce conversions by themselves. We should not think that. In fact, I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 16. <clears throat> this is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, both have died. Lazarus is in heaven. The rich man is in hell. And in verse 27, Luke 16, verse 27, the rich man is begging... Abraham. And then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. If you really understand the doctrine of total depravity, you will realize that no amount of evidence will ever convert a person. It will not. Uh, it, it, the scriptures won't even convert them. Their lack of faith is not because of lack of evidence. This is the way Arminians many times talk. Oh man, I didn't do that argument good enough because he got, didn't get converted. Now what other arguments can I bring? If I just bring enough evidence, this person is going to be converted. And yet the scripture says these people have all the evidence that they need. The whole world is shouting about the existence of God. They know about their sinfulness. The law is written on their heart. They have all the evidence, but what are they doing? Romans 1 and 2 says they're suppressing that truth. They hate that truth. They don't like the evidence. And so the Bible says their unbelief is a willful unbelief. 
It's not lack of evidence. Until God regenerates a person, uh, he will not have the faith to be able to lay claim to salvation. It springs from grace, even faith does. And so no sign or wonder will change the dead heart of an unbeliever uh, to believe. God has to first speak life into him. But that does not mean that God cannot use miracles to get people's attention or to accompany the gospel as it goes into new regions. Uh, by the way, I should say that even um, when you understand total depravity, regeneration's a miracle. I mean, it's a miracle anybody believes if you understand depravity. Uh, it's, in fact, Scripture says it's as much of a miracle as raising a physical corpse from the dead. The Bible says you are spiritually dead in your transgressions. But it's not a sign because you can't see it. Signs you can see, but not all miracles are signs. They can't all be seen. But anyway, uh, back here, it many times accomplishes or accompanies uh, the gospel as it goes into a new region. Romans 15, 18 through 19, Paul says every time he went into a new region, this is what was happening. He said, word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Now, are miracles necessary for the gospel to go forth? No. The gospel has a power all of its own. It's the dunamis of God, the dynamite, the power of God unto salvation. But it is interesting to see how many times over the past 2,000 years, it seems all the time, when the gospel penetrates a new region, there are miracles galore that are there. We see it in modern history as well, in the country we grew up in, in Ethiopia. Uh, uh, as the church was young and as it was developing, there were all kinds of miracles. It just it was an amazing thing how God sovereignly bought them. As the scriptures were brought in, as the church grew and it became solidified, there were less and less miracles. The same thing happened in China. Um, every leader that I spoke with there said that in their early ministry, there were all kinds of miracles that God was performing. As they got the scriptures, they became grounded and the church grew there were less and less miracles. God still was performing them. I saw the same thing exactly in India. But my point here is that when it, the gospel goes into a new region, many times God will use those to get the attention of people. Uh, perhaps uh, he has some other reason, uh, reasons, but they do uh, seem to accompany the gospel. Now, I don't need to go over Roman numeral 2. I think I've demonstrated that this situation really was unique. Uh, only Christ... And the apostles, uh, do you see this kind of um, thing where everybody's healed? And even with Jesus, remember he, it says that he could do no mighty miracles in his hometown of Nazareth because of their lack of faith. So th this really was a remarkable thing uh, here. And when it says here that all were healed, it doesn't mean everybody in Jerusalem because there are people who get healed later. Everybody who was brought to them. And later on, once they're apostleship is attested to they do uh, healings but it's not to the same extent even in their ministries so this was unique now in roman numeral three i want you to notice that god is not bound by magic formulas when it comes to healing in verses four and nine peter simply speaks he doesn't lay hands on anybody he simply speaks uh, but in verse 9, it speaks of healing through the hands of the apostles, and commentators assume that their hands must have been in some way involved. Jesus frequently would put his hands upon people when he prayed for them for healing, so it may have been that. But again, I want you to notice it says 
through the hands. Their hands didn't heal. It was God who healed, and their hands were simply the instruments that God used. Then in verse 15, you've got a totally different, somewhat surprising method that God uses. In verse 15, Peter didn't even have to be aware of what diseases were out there. In fact, it seems he didn't, he didn't have to pray. He just walks through the midst of his shadow, touches them, they're healed. Uh, it's just a strange thing that he does. And then in verse 12, we see that rather than calling people to the front of a stadium, like many times happens today, he was going in the midst of the people. Now, the reason I bring up this diversity of methods that was used is it's so easy for people to think that it's my hand and the special position my hand was in, or the shadow, or the intonation of the voice, or something else that is uh, unique. It's, it's kind of uh, interesting when you study charismatic and Pentecostal congregations, and I have uh, visited and interacted and, and uh, worked with quite a number of those, and it seems that there's the copycat syndrome. When they see an evangelist doing something, everybody will copycat what he is doing, thinking, I imagine, that it's a formula. You know, if he's breathing on people, everybody else starts breathing on people. If his hands are shaking, everybody else on the hands are, are, are shaking as well. And I think in many cases, it's just sheer emotionalism that's going on. It actually kind of freaked me out first time I saw people, you know, blowing on people. I said, what in the world are you guys doing? Said, oh, we're blowing the Holy Spirit on people. Well, they had read that, you know, about Christ and the gospel that he blew on them and received the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, they're uh, doing that. And then they say that you too can learn how to heal in this way. And I think there's been so many people who have been hurt by this manipulation of pastors' false expectations that have been set up. And in the emotions of the moment, they think maybe they've been healed. Next morning, they wake up. They're still as sick as ever. They still have the same problems. And uh, it's just been a, a bad thing. But... Uh, the point here is they say, okay, you can sign up for your school of healing, and depending on which school you go to, you find people insisting that you use your hands in the right way, and you put the pressure in just the right way. Some of them have you push, you push back, and then they'll, you know, sort of be helped to be slain in the spirit. <laughs> they lose their balance. Um, but uh, anyway, to think like that is to think in terms of magic. Use this formula, you get this result. And it's so important to realize God is sovereign. He can use any means that he wants to use, and he can, use, uh, he can do healings without any means, and he frequently does that without any means. But he only performs miracles when and where they serve his kingdom interests and his glory. You cannot demand miracles uh, Any time you want. People say, well, what about this passage? Is this not miracles on demand? And I say, no. The purpose here was to authenticate these apostles, and so God sovereignly brings this grouping of miracles in order to authenticate them, but later on, you don't see the apostles being able to do the same things once they're, once they're authenticated. In fact, the apostle Paul, remember, he was an apostle born out of due time, so he had to be authenticated as well. Later on, you see him doing exactly the same kind of miracles at the beginning. In fact, any handkerchiefs that he touched and people took to the sick, they were healed. Any aprons he wore, he said, here, take this apron. And they took it, they would get healed. But later on, he wasn't able to heal certain people. He certainly did not send out napkins and aprons 
And yet you find charlatans today who will send out truckloads of these aprons and these napkins that supposedly they have blessed and they guarantee that you will be healed and you have to buy them. It's a pretty, pretty pricey uh, garment too that you're buying. What they have done is they have merchandised the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and it makes a mockery of the scripture. If you look at the people who have been healed in the first four chapters of Acts, you begin to realize Jesus didn't heal everybody that he could have healed. Uh, there were people at the temple. There were people who had been all their lives in places that Christ had gone by. He didn't heal them. He didn't cast out demons out of absolutely everyone. Why? Because miracles are not designed for our comfort. They are designed for God's kingdom glory. They are designed for the advancement of his purposes. And I think we need to keep that very much in mind. They are sovereignly distributed. The last thing I want to look at is the kinds of miracles that were performed. There was the sudden death in verses 1 through 11. Now, it's kind of hard to market that in the church, so you don't find a lot of people taking credit for that. Yeah, I struck two people down last week, and uh, uh, they died, and we buried them in white cloths. But I do believe that God continues to occasionally do this. Uh, in fact, I have witnessed several remarkable times where God has struck down people when the church was willing to exercise church discipline. In fact, our presbytery had this happen to a pastor back when it was Siouxland's presbytery. Uh, and I think God did this just to make an example out of him. But uh, there was a pastor who had, uh, was in the process of divorcing his wife. Uh, he, was talk, he had talked a woman in his congregation into divorcing her husband so that they could get married. His wife complained to Presbytery. Presbytery yanked him out of the ministry. He wouldn't repent. Defrocked him. He wouldn't repent. Excommunicated him. He wouldn't repent. As soon as the discipline came into effect, he was struck down with the disease, and it was a very rare thing where the virus went past the, the brain barrier and he had a viral infection on his brain, and he died just within a few days. Now, thankfully, he repented on his deathbed. But I have seen uh, a number of situations, well, not a number. I've seen a handful of situations where people have been, after they have been warned and warned, and it's just like, boom, they fall to the ground right then. And if you want some of the documentation on these, the Lord has done this. Peter Hammond tells of one head of state in Africa who repeatedly made it his goal to destroy every Christian, to destroy every Bible in there. He said there is no God, and he, he would uh, make his uh, a public, you know, strike me dead if there is a God type of a thing. But he was so harassing the church that the church finally decided, you know, maybe it is okay for us to pray the imprecatory prayers. And Peter Hammond said as soon as they began to do that, God struck the airline, that that, the airplane that that guy was in, with a lightning bolt, and boom, it fell down to the ground. Um, I told a story not too uh, long ago, it seems like, about the two uh, policemen in Ethiopia that were harassing the church. And the church began asking God to uh, protect them. And when they came this one time together, one of them was struck with a lightning bolt, and the other uh, just backed off, and he didn't bother the church uh, anymore. Now, whether God uses natural means or whether he uses supernatural means, in 1 Corinthians 11, on the deaths that uh, I mentioned there, it definitely shows our God continues to be a God of judgment. Then verse 12 speaks of, generally of many signs and wonders. 
Verses 15 through 16 speaks of healings. Verse 16 speaks of the casting out of demons as being miraculous. That may seem a little bit strange. Why does the New Testament consistently treat the casting out of demons as being a miracle? In part, I think it's because of the power of demons, but in part, I think it's because in the Old Testament, uh, this had not happened before. God reserved it uh, for the new covenant, and this is why Jesus said, if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Luke 11, verse 20. It's a general kingdom power that lasts until there are no more demons to cleanse. If you want some scriptures that deal with the cleansing, I can give you more, but Zechariah 13, verse 2 would be one. It says, eventually there's a coming a time when the land will be completely purged of the unclean spirit. Revelation chapter 20. There's other passages uh, like that. Now, some people believe that you ought never to attempt to cast out demons today. Uh, some cessationists. Now, I'm a cessationist as well, a modified one. I believe that the apostleship, prophecy has ceased, and so I don't believe, I believe that uh, uh, the signs of the apostles have ceased as well. Those are those remarkable groupings of miracles that authenticate their claim. So we're not going to find people that, uh, you know, their shadows are going to heal people. But I believe just as strongly that the casting out of demons was not restricted to the apostles. Um, ordinary believers cast out demons. Christ's disciples even saw people who weren't a part of the apostleship, weren't a part of their group, casting out demons and said, we, we forbade them. And Jesus said, no, don't forbid them. Um, uh, they cast demons out in the name of Jesus. Matthew 7.21 indicates the casting out of demons will be so common in the new covenant that there will be Christians on judgment day who will say, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? He doesn't contradict them. Uh, maybe they thought they did and they didn't, but whatever the case, it was so common that they thought at least that they were doing it. The 70 were given that power in Luke 10. Ordinary believers are given that power in Mark 16 in the context of the gospel being preached to every creature. I think it's virtually impossible to be on the mission field for very long without witnessing the need to cast demons out of people and the successful casting of demons out of people. Now, one of the things that you're going to notice later in this book is that though, even though demons can do miracles too, demons always end up bringing people into bondage and uncleanness by their fruits you will know them. So just because a person claims to be able to do miracles and just because they claim to be a Christian does not mean they are of God or that the miracles are of God. Matthew 24 makes it very clear that false prophets are going to be able to do miracles. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 9 shows that the Antichrist was able to do miracles. And uh, so miracles by themselves, in fact, the witch doctors in Exodus that were associated with Pharaoh, they did some of the miracles that Moses did. They weren't able to do all of them, but it doesn't say they thought they did them. It says they did the miracles, the same thing that Moses did. And so um, it does not demonstrate that a person is a man of God just because there is a miracle. Rather, the miracles that manifest the purposes of God, that's why I took the time to lay out all of those purposes and that show forth the fruits of the Spirit, show by their fruits that they are of God. And so what this does is this sets up a powerful contrast between what is happening here 
And what is happening in the very next verses as the high priest and the Sadducees, no doubt moved by Satan, have, are pouring out their rage and their hatred and their hurt and their beatings and their persecutions upon the, the apostles. You've got that contrasted with the love and with the healing of these apostles. And not only do you find uh, a difference uh, in terms of those results, but you find a difference in goals. These apostles are willing to lay down their own kingdoms, their own agendas, their own desires, and they're seeking only the glory of Christ and the extension of His kingdom. In complete contrast, you've got these Sadducees who are coming in, and in order to protect their own kingdom, to protect their security so that Rome doesn't take it away, to protect their own causes and their purposes, they're willing to fight against Christ's kingdom and to fight against His grace. And so we come full circle back to where we started with the Amish man and his son. Now, he was just joking with his son about this. Probably not a thing to joke about, but even though he was joking, many who display this attitude toward miracles are not joking. And so what I want to ask you this morning is when you pray, whether it's for a miracle or it's any kind of a prayer that you are praying, is your desire like the apostles here? where your desire is, Lord, not my glory, not my interest, not my selfish purposes, but I want to serve you better. That's why I need this article I'm asking for. I want to advance your kingdom purposes. Or is your prayer much like the prayers of the Sadducees, where it's all revolving around their little kingdoms, their little purposes, uh, and, their, uh, and their comfort? Well, may it be that it is like the prayer of the apostles. May we see that God is sovereign and we are His servants. But at the same time, may we never limit the power of our sovereign to do as He pleases, with miracles or without miracles. And may He receive all the glory. Amen. Thank you, Father, that You are a God of miracles. We thank You that Your power is great. We thank you, Father, that you are consistent in advancing the purposes of your kingdom, that there is none who can stay your hand or say to you, what are you doing? I pray that you would transform our attitudes more and more into conformity with the purposes that you lay out consistently. May we not be uh, people who are only thinking about our own comfort, our own desires, and driven by the purposes of our flesh and our Christianity but may we lay those all down at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ and pursue your kingdom and your glory, seeking after your righteousness. And Father, we thank you that when we do that, all of these things can be added to us. I pray for your blessing, your purposes, and uh, your protection to rest with this, your people. In Jesus' name, amen.